I will never forget that day so many years ago. I was dressed in my best clothes, which meant I was quite uncomfortable. And I was sitting next to my grandparents on the balcony. And as we leaned over, we could see so many people down on the stage. And each person was either dressed in a black tuxedo with a black bow tie or a beautiful black dress. And each one of them was holding an instrument, all kinds of varieties and sizes, and little eight-year-old me didn't quite understand what was about to happen at the Denver Symphony that day. The conductor walked out, tapped the baton on the music stand, and a hush fell over the, the entire auditorium, everybody waiting with bated breath for what was about to come. And as the conductor began to move his hands back and forth in rhythm, the music began to well up. The deep bass notes resonating in my chest and the higher notes coming from the violas and violins crying out in a beautiful medley that just washed me away. The symphony is amazing. If you've never been to a symphony, it is hard to express what it is to have a symphony carry you away with beautiful music. But here's the thing about the symphony. They have to have instruments, don't they? It would be a little bit awkward if they didn't. And in the same way, in the symphony of salvation, God's chosen instrument for bringing people to salvation is faith. Faith is the instrument of salvation in the symphony of salvation. In fact, salvation comes by faith alone. Faith alone in Christ alone. That is our hope. That is the gospel. And as we look at God's word today in Matthew chapter 9, we will learn what it looks like to live out, to experience, be washed away in the symphony of salvation. We're going to learn that we must nurture our faith, we must act in faith, and that we must rest in faith. As you turn to Matthew chapter 9, we will be reading verses 18 to 26. Let me just remind you of, of a few things going on in the earthly ministry of Jesus that leads up to this moment here. Jesus has been performing miracles. And he has been teaching with authority like nobody else ever has. And as a result, he started to garner a crowd. And that crowd sometimes got a little bit raucous. They were kind of like groupies and would push and shove. And so in the middle of Jesus' teaching, we find that he was often interrupted. And that's a little bit of what's going on here. So as we turn again in Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 to 26, Jesus has been teaching, and we're going to find him being interrupted yet again. This is the word of the Lord, starting in verse 18. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples, and behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. 
But when the crowd had been put aside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. This is the word of the Lord. It is true, and it is given in love. Let's all take a moment to bow our heads in prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and redeemer. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. <clears throat> when we think about a symphony, we, sh- we, sh- we all are probably aware that no symphony just happens. Every member must nurture their skill. They practice for hours and hours, over years, to, to nurture their skill to participate in a symphony so that they can make beautiful music together. And in the symphony of salvation, it is no different. Because salvation comes by faith alone, we must nurture our faith. And if we're gonna do that, we should be honest and start with something a little basic. We should define what faith is. If we're gonna nurture it, we need to know what it is, right? So Hebrews 11.1 tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen assurance and conviction. In my experience, we talk a lot about those two aspects. But there's another aspect that I think we neglect, the not seen part. Our faith is connected to the very real historical actions of Jesus, to the revelation of God's word and the things we can look at and study. It's connected to our experience of the Holy Spirit as he works in our hearts. Those are things we can kind of test out But there's also a mysterious element. Faith involves not just knowing that some things are true, but having faith even in the mysterious and the unknown. And if that's true, if that is the case, then we should expect that faith will sometimes be hard, and it will sometimes be scary. And even sometimes our faith will be challenged. But at the same time, that means that our faith should grow as we nurture it. And so as we look at our text today, we see faith growing as it is nurtured. We see seeking faith, believing faith, and saving faith. If you look, it starts off with this man coming to interrupt Jesus. He's teaching with authority. He's got a crowd around him, and this man comes to interrupt This man, we're told in the Gospels of Mark and Luke, his name is Jairus, and he's an important person. But he comes to Jesus, and make no mistake about this, this was the worst day of his life. The kind of pain and fear and sorrow that I don't even dread, I can't even fathom, I can't even imagine what it was to be Jairus on this day. Because he seeks Jesus out and says, my daughter has died. This heartbroken man is seeking out the one last hope he has. He's heard true things about Jesus, but he doesn't know where this is all going to go. And then as our story goes on, we're introduced to a second person that demonstrates seeking faith. This woman, she's had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and she's heard about Jesus, and she comes to him, seeking out some sort of healing and hope. Jairus' story, I think we can get a little bit of our hearts and minds around because we see death all around us. But this woman's a little bit unique. 
I actually knew when I was in college a young woman who had a very similar infirmity. And she, as a result of this bleeding, was anemic. She was frail and weak. Her eyes were sunken and her skin was pale. She often missed class. She certainly didn't go out and do the fun things college kids do because she didn't have energy or she was just too sick. This poor woman seeks Jesus out and she is frail. She is sickly. But it's worse than that. You see, she had an illness that would have made people around her say, we don't talk about that in polite society. She would have been socially marginalized because this is just uncomfortable for people to talk about. But it is even worse than that because this illness, her malady, made her ritually impure. She was not allowed to worship God, the one true God, the the God who created the heavens and the earth and calls people to himself She was not allowed to worship him because of her illness. She was ritually impure. It seems that she would be hopeless, but she's seeking out Jesus. Why? Because she's heard true things about him. Things like he teaches with authority, but with kindness. He welcomes children to himself. He'd done things like heal people, the lame, the ill, but you know who else? Lepers the untouchables. So she has heard true things about Jesus that had inspired some sense of hope, some sense of passion. Seeking faith is the sort of faith we often see in college students, a passionate pursuit of truth where we hear bits and pieces of truth and start to put it together and we wanna know more and more and more. Seeking faith is both passionate and hopeful but also full of fear and angst oftentimes because in both Jairus' case and this woman's. They didn't know what he was gonna say. He could have said, I'm busy. He could have said, I don't know you. He could have said, leave me alone. Seeking faith is passionate, but incomplete, because we don't know the result of that faith. But we see that seeking faith in our story advance to believing faith. Believing faith is when we move from the data, the true things we've heard, to actually believing them. Have you been there in your life where you have that kind of aha moment, like I've heard that the Bible is trustworthy and finally somebody has explained to me how we have received the text we have today over years and years and years of protective work by the power of the Holy Spirit and godly people translating and transmitting the text to us today. Maybe you've had an aha moment of where you've got belief where you start to say, I think this is actually true. We see this in this story with Jairus. He comes to Jesus. Can you imagine his heart in his throat saying, Jesus, my daughter is dead. If you would just come lay your hand on her, you can make her well. That's seeking faith. But then what happens? Jesus and the disciples stand up. They stand up and follow him to go to her or to his house to see his daughter. Suddenly, Jesus is not just somebody who's heard things about. He has seen personally that Jesus is trustworthy. He has seen that Jesus is willing to act. The question is, is he able? And then this woman, in a similar way, she has heard about Jesus, but as she moves from seeking to believing faith, what does she do? Sickly, frail, weak, pushes her way through a crowd. 
and finds just the hem of his robe, reaches out and her fingers touch those threads because she is believing that Jesus is willing and able to do something about the incurable disease that has plagued her for her life throughout her, the last 12 years. Now, I gotta be clear. Seeking and believing faith are not saving faith. Even the demons believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And they despise him. So there is all kinds of hope and growth as we move along the path, but we need to move to a place of saving faith. What is saving faith? It's jumping from believing the truth of God's word, the truth of who Jesus was, to trusting in Jesus. What do we see in our text? We see Jairus, we see Jesus goes in and touches Jairus' daughter. They get to the house, there's a crowd, there's tumult, there's wailing and music, and Jesus goes in, and what does he do? Something that a religious leader shouldn't do in the first century. He reaches out and touches this dead girl. That makes him ritually unclean. No different than this poor woman. Jesus does the unthinkable and heals this little girl, brings her back to life. What do you think was going on in Jairus' heart in that moment? The worst day of his life, the unimaginable, has just become a day of saving faith because he has seen who Jesus is and what he's like. He has seen that Jesus is both willing and able, and he believes. And because of that, he can't help but tell everybody, and word goes throughout the district. And what about this girl? This poor woman, socially marginalized, physically frail, ritually rejected. What happens to her? She does something she's not supposed to do. She goes out through the crowd. She's not supposed to be there. Then she reaches out and touches a religious leader. She's certainly not supposed to do that. And when Jesus feels the power go out from him, he says, according to, to uh, Mark and Luke, who touched me? What do you think she was thinking, this poor woman was feeling at that moment? What is gonna happen to me? Am I gonna be exposed? Are people gonna know that I, an unclean woman, am out in public? It's a frightening moment. Have you been there? that angst of knowing that your sin is on display before a holy God? Have you been there, being afraid that people might truly know who you are? Have you been there? And here's the thing. The symphony of salvation starts to well up and play loudly because what does Jesus do? He looks at her and he says, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. By the power of Jesus Christ, her faith makes her well, right? She is now no longer socially marginalized. She is no longer physically frail, and she is no longer ritually rejected. She is a daughter of the king. She has been seen and known. As the symphony of salvation plays in your life, can you look back at that time when you had that dread fear of being known? And Jesus looked at you and said, you are my son. You are my daughter. Take heart, your sins are paid for. You have been made well. The symphony of salvation is beautiful 
And as we nurture our faith, we get to experience that growth and see with delight what God is doing. But that's not the end of our story. We don't just float up to heaven, do we? The other thi- another thing that stands out about a symphony is everybody has to actually play their instrument. Can you imagine going to the symphony and having the conductor raise his hands and start conducting and everybody just sits there and looks at him? What a disappointment that would be. In the same way, because salvation comes by faith alone, we need to act in faith. You see, our deepest beliefs determine how we act, don't they? And so our behavior actually reveals what's going on in our hearts. James 2.17 tells us that faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. We need to make sure we get this right. This is a big deal for our faith. This is a big deal for our gospel proclamation. What we are not saying is the lie that you must be good enough for God to love you. We are not saying that you need to go do a bunch of good things to get yourself halfway to heaven and Jesus meets you the rest of the way. That is not the gospel. Rather, what we are saying is that you are given a new heart when Jesus invades your life. You are by faith made new. And as a result, the good works that Christ planned from before the foundations of time for you to do, you get to do with delight and joy. You get to play that instrument of faith in the symphony of salvation. What does that look like? Well, I see three things in our text that that might look like faith in action. The first is we do the countercultural. When Jesus goes to heal Jairus' daughter, he shows up on the scene, and you have people wailing putting on a display, and flute players playing a dirge. These were actual professional mourners. It was common in the first century, and actually in the Middle East, they still do this today to make sure that it is clear how sorrowful people were. They would actually bring in all of these people and pay them to make the funeral scene right. And Jesus comes up to them and is like, y'all have it wrong. She's not dead, she's asleep. Now, let's be clear, she was dead. Jesus knows that. These people also know death. They weren't fools in the first century. They they knew the difference between a living sick person and a dead person. And so they laughed at Jesus. They laughed at him because he did something so countercultural. He said, all of this mourning that you're doing, it's not warranted. It's not what we're gonna do today. And they laughed at him. And then this impure woman, Jesus calls her his daughter. Our, the first century, you didn't adopt people like that. You didn't welcome the weirdos into your family, the, the outsiders, the foreigners. No, that's, that's not the way the culture worked. Jesus was countercultural, and he calls us to be the same. Think about our community and our lives. What would it look like if we loved our neighbor with radical hospitality? With, we invited people into our homes, cooked food for them, had table fellowship with them, And they're the sort of people that the neighbor on the other side of our house is going, can't believe you let them into your house. What if we did that? That's counter-cultural, gospel-lived faith. What if we were to reject gossip? We all want to feel like we fit in. We want to participate in all the discussions and all of that, and we want to have our two cents. But when slander starts to rise, what if we were to shut our mouths? 
Or even better, what if we were to tell our friends the truth about that person and say, no, what you're saying is not true. That's somebody I care about. You'll get laughed at. You'll feel like you're on the outs. But faith in action, acting in faith, in the symphony of salvation, it is worth it because what we do reflects what we genuinely believe. The second thing is we do the impractical. What should Jairus have done in that moment from a worldly perspective? He should have sat on the ground and wept. He should have been with that party of mourners. But what did he do instead? He sought out Jesus. According to the worldly wisdom, what should this woman have done? She should have been hiding out, lived apart from society. She was rejected. She wasn't welcome, but what did she do? She went through the crowd, seeking out the one hope, the Savior. Faith in action looks impractical from a worldly perspective. What are some impractical things from a worldly perspective that we might do in faith? Give generously of your time and your resources. Yes, even your money. Give generously and passionately for the kingdom of God. People are gonna look at you and say, you should be growing your 401k instead. And you can look at them and say, no, we should be growing the kingdom of God. Or what if we sought to, to, to give up the idea of living for comfort? The world around us says, find the most comfortable thing and that's your ambition and goal. What if we did the uncomfortable thing for the sake of our faith in Christ? It's gonna be impractical, but it's worth it as the, salvation, or the uh, symphony of salvation plays in our lives. And then third, we do the impossible. And I'm not saying we're gonna go perform miracles. That's not something we do. That's something God alone does. But think about this. The dead daughter was raised. The incurable illness was removed. The impossible happens in our story. The impossible happens in your life and in mine every day. Every day that we trust that mysterious reality of our faith and dive into the hope that the Bible is in fact true and has meaning for me today and we obey it even in light of the fact that the people around us say, eh, you're weird and outdated. It's worth it in the symphony of salvation. The impossible repenting of sin, looking at our own hearts and saying, I'm not good on my own. I need a new heart. I need the sin that is, resides in my heart to be washed away. It's impossible if the Holy Spirit doesn't wake you up first. And our growth in grace, the day in and day out process of growing in our trust of Jesus Christ as we pray, as we read his word, as we talk to other Christians, as we worship it's all a gift of grace that we receive by faith. And apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, none of that will happen. It is the impossible. But God invites us right into it in the symphony of salvation. The last thing that stands out to me when I think about that symphony is that it was just beautiful. You get me? A real symphony, well played, it's just rest for our souls. It transports us away from all of the difficulty, at least for a moment. In a similar fashion, in the symphony of salvation, because we, salvation comes by faith alone, we need to rest in faith. 
How do we do that? What does that mean? Let's start with a really simple answer. This story is true. It's not a myth. It's not a legend. God's word is true. And when the Bible tells us that Jesus brought a dead girl to life and healed this woman, he did it. Does that not give you hope in the middle of your distress? I pray it does. We have a God who is willing and able to work in our lives. There are a few contrasts in our story that I think also help us. Let me draw our attention to the first one, Jairus and these frenetic mourners. You see, you have these people who are putting on a show. They were loud. They were putting on a physical display, tearing their clothes, putting dust on their head. There were flutes playing this sorrowful dirge so that everybody could see and everybody could know. What does Jairus do? In, 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 in contrast to the loud and fake show, he's calm and authentic. He goes to Jesus and says in words that I just can't fathom, my daughter has just died. Come help. Another contrast, this woman and the, and the frenetic crowd. This crowd is basically like a bunch of groupies at a concert. They just want to be close to Jesus because he's important, because he's famous. So they're gathered around pushing and shoving, make a, making a whole scene so that they can be seen with the important person. And how does this woman come to Jesus? She comes to him hopeful and humble. And then the third one, Jesus contrasted to the mocking mourners. These guys come, Jesus comes. Can you even imagine Jairus in his sorrow and grief and mixed hope to have somebody mock the one last hope he has? They are insensitive and unkind. They are selfish and foolish. They're opportunistic and jeering. But what is Jesus like? He was interrupted in the middle of his sermon. He was interrupted by some random guy. Jesus is kind. Jesus is patient. See, we rest in our faith in these ways. We seek to be calm and authentic and hopeful and humble to be kind and patient because that is the way Jesus comes to us. What does that practically look like? Because I don't want to be too philosophical and weird for you. First one, Sabbath rest. Do we really believe that here and now, in this place, as we worship God, is the true rest we need? Or do we believe we need to sleep in and go watch TV and go watch sporting events? Any one of those things is not inherently wrong in and of itself. But do we really believe that in the worship of the one true God, as we set aside a day for holy worship, do we believe that we receive real rest? God says yes. What say you? And then finally, this gives us a confidence to approach the throne of grace because we rest in the arms of our loving Father who is willing and able to work out our salvation. In the symphony of salvation, we do need to nurture our faith. We need to act in faith. And at the end of the day, we rest because God is willing and able to save us in the person work of Jesus Christ through faith and faith alone. Let me uh, lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you came into this world 
in the flesh. We thank you that your word is true and that you tell us in this true story of your miraculous work for the healing and salvation of these people. We thank you that that same offer is made to us. We praise your holy name. And as we turn our attention to the Lord's table, to communion, we ask that you would continue to bless us. In your holy name we pray, amen.